you got a Bible, let's go to Acts chapter 13. Speaking of taking the gospel to all the world with kingdom hope unfurled, there is no greater passage we could turn to on the heels of that song than Acts chapter 13. We started Acts chapter 13 last week uh, and got the first three verses. We'll pick up at verse 4 in just a moment. But before we dive in, let me say welcome, everybody. So thankful you're here. And if you're new to Grace Life and you'd like to know a little more about us, we would be honored to get to help you. There's a tearaway tab on the worship guide. That's a great resource you could use if you want to fill that out. There's a couple of clear boxes behind me near the doors here. You could drop those in there on your way out today if you like to do that. There's also a QR code if that's easier for you. You could just open up your photos on your phone and scan that and, and uh, you could fill that out electronically and I'd be happy to follow up with you. You could also, if you'd like to, sign up for our next Membership Matters class which is coming up in November. We just had one last week, got another one coming up. Thank the Lord he's continuing to add to our number here at Grace Life and we praise him for that. In fact, tonight we're having our last outdoor baptism of the season uh, out at Shadow Lake at 5 o'clock. So if you'd like to come out there today, just be careful coming around the roundabout. I don't know that you can officially call it a roundabout yet. It's just an about, all right? So when you get to the about, just be a little careful. But if you're coming from McAdory High School and you get to the stop sign there, the, the way you'll get into that is to go to the left and then turn back to the right to get into the driveway. So it's a little awkward. Just pay attention when you're out there. But 5 o'clock baptisms today and high school, 10th, 11th, 12th grade, will be out there. You can start coming out about 4.30 if you'd want to, and then we're going to uh, celebrate baptisms and then uh, hang out. Our college students, I think, are going to be there with our high school tonight, so going to be a lot of fun. Next, this coming Saturday, six days from now, uh, we want to encourage you to live the grass life. I don't know who came up with that phrase, live the grass life. Mike, you came up David came up with that, live the grass life. Uh, so sod for the new place is being delivered this week. That's exciting. And uh, many hands will make light work. And so if you would be willing to give up some hours of your day next Saturday, it's a great Saturday to do that. The weather looks to be nice. Most of our teams don't have anything significant going on between 7 a.m. and 12 p.m. Uh, so we'd love for you to come out there and be a part of that uh, from sixth grade up, okay, because there will be some equipment moving around. We really don't want to have children. That could get a little crazy. So if you've got sixth graders and up, we want everybody to come out, men, women, young people. It'd be a great day of fellowship, okay? Um, and so if you, it may help us if you register for that, just so we have a good idea that we've got enough. If we get to Thursday and it looks like Will's got to lay all this by himself, then we need to shake the bushes some more. So to help us know where we stand before we get to Saturday, because uh, I'm pretty useless, Will, so you're on your own. Uh, I actually have a wedding Saturday morning. Another young couple in our church uh, entering into marriage early, 10 o'clock wedding on Saturday morning. Way to go. That's a good choice. I like that. All right. Um, so go to yourgracelife.com slash grass. Got it. Yourgracelife.com slash grass to sign up to help out with that. We would be very appreciative if you would do that. All right. Acts chapter 13. So as I said last week, we got into chapter 13. And chapter 13 really begins the second half 
of the book of Acts. Up until that point, really, Peter has been the main human instrument that the Holy Spirit has been working through, mainly toward the Jewish people. We get to Acts chapter 13, and there's a a different individual now that's going to become the primary human instrument that the Holy Spirit's going to work through now, predominantly through the Gentiles. And we saw last week that it was God, the Holy Spirit, that called out specifically Barnabas and Saul to take this new message, a message that the kingdoms of the world had never heard before, the good news of the gospel to all the world. They were called to go out and to communicate this good news. It was different from any message that had ever been heard up until that time. Religious expressions throughout the world up until that time had all been been about obedience, had all been about performance, had all been about sacrifice, had all been about works. Do whatever you can do to appease your gods. Do whatever you can do to advance in your system and hopefully be rewarded within that system. And, you know, the religions of the world are still operating like that today, aren't they? The religions of the world are still teaching that you've got to do certain things. You've got to perform in a certain way, accomplish certain things to advance in that, to perhaps have favor with your God or perhaps to have eternal life. And that's how people around us, even in our own culture, seem to think today. Most people, I even, um, I don't know if it's true, but I saw a stat just this week that said 70% of Christians, I don't know how we're categorizing that word Christians, but 70% of Christians believe that Jesus is not the only way to have a relationship with God and to have everlasting life. Even right here in the Bible Belt, there's a, a, a dominant way of thinking that seems to say, well, if you're a good person, you'll get to go to heaven. And only bad people are the people that go to hell. But the reality is the one true God, one true God, he sent his only begotten son into this world not to create another religion, not to hand mankind another to-do list. When Jesus died on the cross, when Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't about what you and I could bring to him. It wasn't about what we could do to earn his favor or what we could do to earn salvation. It was the fact that he has provided it for us. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So Barnabas and Saul, they start to go out and to share this gospel with the people that have never heard it. And so the church then begins to move. And as the church begins to move, they begin to encounter the same type of philosophies and thinking and mentality that you and I face as we go into the world now and share this good news of the gospel, of forgiveness and grace and salvation through Christ. The people that they encountered were still trying to earn favor with some divine being. It was all about earning and rewards and that's the way the world works that's not necessarily a bad thing in the world that's not necessarily a bad thing in society we, we live in a performance oriented kind of world those of you that are in sales you know you're only as good as your numbers from last month right some of you who may have jobs where you're maybe making minimum wage you're trying to get the attention of your manager, right? So that maybe through your performance, there can be some better compensation or some some upward movement in that organization. 
Those of you who are in or have been in the food industry, you understand that. That if you perform well, you do your job well, you serve well, that, that hopefully you'll be tipped very well. And I want to encourage you as God's people, always do a good job with that. Your young people in school don't get nervous, but there's this thing called a report card. Right? And that tells the tale. That's revealing. How have I been doing? Have I been doing what I'm supposed to do? Have I been working hard toward that? Tests are coming and it's going to reveal your performance, how you size up yourself and other people. See, we all keep score. Even an upward mom and dads keep score. It's really against the law, but we do. We keep score in that. We all keep score. You know, I'm 75th percentile in my class. So I'm not... I'm not as good as some, but I'm better than most. And, and listen, I don't think that's a bad way for society to function. In fact, I'm a little nervous that I see society sort of getting away from some of that. But it's a very dangerous thing when we transplant that way of thinking into the things of God. When we transplant that way of thinking into the kingdom of God, problems arise when we do that. The kingdom of God doesn't work that way. We can begin to wrongly think that somehow I can earn God's favor. I'm not as good as some people in the world, but I'm certainly not as bad as some people in the world, so God must be okay with me. I've never killed anybody. I've never robbed a bank. Therefore, me and God must be okay. I'm probably going to get to go to heaven one day when I die. But listen, the gospel's not earned. Salvation is not earned. It's freely given. And that's the message that Saul and Barnabas, this new message, that's the message that they're taking out to the people of the world. Not a gospel of performance, but a gospel of freedom. It's a gospel that says you cannot earn the favor of God. You cannot earn the mercy of God. You cannot earn salvation. You cannot earn a relationship with God. It's all by His grace. Listen, the only thing you and I bring to salvation is our sin. The only thing we contribute to salvation is our need for it. That's all. That's all. Nothing we bring is sufficient. Only Jesus is sufficient. And he offers his sufficiency freely. Look at verse 4. So Barnabas and Saul were sent out from the church at Antioch over in Modern-day Syria, they're sent out with this message, with this gospel, like people had never heard before. And notice they're sent out by the Holy Spirit. Well, church, we got to make sure that we're following the Holy Spirit, amen? That, if we're, it, it, that we're in step with His guidance, with His leadership in us, His people, His church, in accordance to God's perfect word. The Bible says they went down to the seaport of Seleucia, and then sailed for the island of Cyprus. It's about 100 miles to sail over to Cyprus. I brought a map. We'll put that up there because I know some of you are into maps. So you can see where they started over there on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea at Antioch. They go down to the port city of Seleucia. And they're going to land at Salamis there on the eastern coast of Cyprus. And we're going to see in a moment they're going to travel all throughout that island. And they're going to set sail out of Paphos. And they're going to get to Perga, which is today uh, modern-day Turkey. And this is Paul's, what we call his first missionary journey. They're going to go to those towns, those places, and then backtrack, and then come back out and sail across the Mediterranean back to Antioch. And here's what we're going to try to do today, class, 
If y'all stay with me, we're going to try to cover Paul's entire first missionary journey, all right? Because sometimes we break that into little bitty pieces, and you sort of don't see the forest for the trees. And I want you to see the forest today. I sort of want you to see the whole journey in one setting here today. Let's look at verse 5. So they get to Cyprus, and there in the town of Salamis, they went to the Jewish synagogues. I brought a picture, too, of what Jewish synagogues kind of looked like back in those days. And the Bible says that in that Jewish synagogue, they preached the word of God. Do we have that? There you go. So it's kind of a, a small place, and you can see sort of the steps that they would encircle that room there on. So that's a lot. When, we, when you follow Paul... Barnabas and others through the book of Acts, and they're going into these Jewish synagogues. That's sort of the visual maybe that you'll have in your mind that may help you sort of understand better what's going on. So they go into the Jewish synagogues there in Salamis, and they preach the word of God, and John Mark went with them as their assistant. So look, we got three guys in this missionary group, right? We got Barnabas. Everybody loves Barnabas. He's a good guy. He's a good friend. Everybody loved to be around Barnabas. He never puts you down. He was always building you up, always encouraging and lifting other people up. And then there's Saul. You remember Saul. You met him back early in Acts. He's standing there holding coats for people so they could stone Stephen, who was preaching the gospel there in Acts chapter 6, 7, I think it was. And, and then Saul's on the road to Damascus, right? But he's got permission to now go and persecute the church and followers of Jesus in Damascus. And he meets Jesus at high noon on the road to Damascus. And he's saved in such a dramatic way there. And then he goes out and he spends three years out in the desert alone with the Lord trying to figure out, how did I miss this? I mean, he knew the Old Testament. He's a Pharisee. He was trained in the greatest school of the rabbis under Gamaliel. He not only knows the Old Testament, he's probably got most, if not all of it, memorized. And he spends all this time out in the desert going, how did, how did I not see this? How did I miss that Jesus is the Messiah? And then he spends about 14 years in obscurity in his hometown of Tarsus until one day a friend named Barnabas comes and says, hey, I need you to come down to Antioch and help me. There's a church there, and they need leadership. They need teaching. They need discipling. They need shepherding. And Antioch becomes the hub of the church then. It becomes ground zero for global missions. Again, I'll remind you, we're sitting here today because of that church that God brought to life in that place called Antioch. So there's Barnabas and there's Saul in this mission group, but there's also this young man by the name of John Mark. He's, he's a young guy. His parents lived in Jerusalem. They were probably pretty well off. In fact, it might have been in their house in the upper room. His mother's name was Mary. It might have been in the upper room where Jesus' disciples had met with Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. It was in his home, the home of his parents, the night that the angel set Peter free out of prison. You remember that? And the church was gathered together at that home, and they're praying. And Peter shows up, and he knocks on the gate, and Rhoda comes out, and she slams the door in his face. And they think it's a ghost. They're praying so hard, but they don't even believe that God has actually set Peter free. Well, that's kind of John Mark's story there. He's, he's maybe uh, the cousin to Barnabas, actually. And it, later on in his life, he's going to get really close to the Apostle Peter. And from Peter, he's going to learn. He's going to hear the stories of Jesus as they're proclaimed and preached and shared again and again. And the Holy Spirit will use that to guide Mark to writing what we call the gospel according to Mark. So this is the missionary group, right? Barnabas and Saul and John Mark. And while they're on Cyprus, that island out there in the Mediterranean, they encounter a false 
prophet. He's against the gospel. He doesn't want the message of the gospel, the freedom of grace, of salvation to be proclaimed there. So he begins to oppose these three men, and that doesn't go over well with Saul. Now, Barnabas might have tried to hug the guy, but not Saul. Saul's not much of a hugger, all right? That's sort of Barnabas's role. But here's what happens. Verse 6 says, Afterward, they traveled from town to town across the entire island until finally they reached Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean he's connected to Jesus in any sort of way. That, just, that name means son of Jesus. Jesus was really sort of a relative common name. It's a Greek form of the uh, name Joshua. And the Bible says that this false prophet had attached himself to a politician, to a governor named uh, Sergius Paulus. The Bible says he's an intelligent man. In fact, archaeologists have uncovered things on Cyprus that uh, bear the inscription of this governor's name. So he's a historical person, and we know that because it's in God's Word. And the Bible says that Sergius Paulus, the governor, invited Barnabas and Saul to visit him because he wanted to hear the Word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, as his name means in Greek, interfered and urged the governor to pay no attention to what Barnabas and Saul said. He was trying to keep the governor from believing. Notice that. He wasn't trying to keep the governor from doing anything, but from believing. Satan understands what this gospel is about, that we're made right with God by grace through faith, by believing, not of works. And so this satanic force in this man is opposing the gospel message, trying to keep the governor from believing. Verse 9, Saul, also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. He's got a name change here now, so we're going to see him mostly referred to as Paul from here on out. And he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he looked the sorcerer in the eye, and then he said, you son of the devil. See, that's not Barnabas's job, but that's why Saul's there. He just calls him out, you son of the devil, full of every sort of deceit and fraud, an enemy of all that is good. Will you never stop perverting the true ways of the Lord? Watch now, for the Lord has laid his hand of punishment upon you, and you will be struck blind. You will not see the sunlight for some time. Instantly, mist and darkness came over the man's eyes, and he began groping around, begging for someone to take his hand and lead him. And when the governor saw what had happened, He became a believer, for he was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. Yeah, well, duh, right? He was already interested in the Word of God. The Holy Spirit seems to have already been drawing him into salvation, and now he's astonished, and he now is believing. Verse 13 says that Paul and his companions then left Paphos by ship for Pamphylia. So now they go go to the northern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. They land at the port of Perga. So they're at modern-day Turkey. We'll put the map back up there for just a moment so you can get reacquainted with where they are on the northern part of the sea. And let me share this with you. Today we're going to put out on our social media a link to a great video that I watched this week on YouTube. I don't always recommend YouTube to you, but there's good things there. And uh, Our Daily Bread. How many of you remember that devotional, Our Daily Bread? Jim Horn. Remember Jim Horn? Barney. Where's Jim? I saw Janet earlier somewhere. I think. Were you in here? Yeah, there you are. Jim Horn used to bring me copies of Our Daily Bread all the time. He'd find particular devotionals on particular days that just ministered to him, and he would sometimes make copies of that or open it up to that and share it with me. Well, that organization, they've got a lot of great videos 
on YouTube. And if you want to jot this one down, you go to your YouTube, and it's Our Daily Bread, and it's In Pursuit of Paul. In Pursuit of Paul, episode three. But we'll put that on social media. If you want to see these places and what they really look like, the places we just plotted there on the map, this is a great video to watch. It'll show you that. I found it interesting. I think some of you will too. What we know is that region that they are in now in southern Turkey is harsh. It's a harsh place to be, harsh terrain, harsh weather, not to mention the people that live there were not very friendly. It's in southern Turkey, but there wasn't a lot of southern hospitality there. Uh, They kind of had a reputation of being violent robbers. That might be what Paul had in mind later on when he writes these words out of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. He says, I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities. In the deserts and on the seas, and I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. So these three men, they're going to tough places, but when they get to Perga, John Mark must realize, okay, this is not what I was bargaining for. Nobody told me we were coming here to Perga. And so Acts 13, verse 13, the end of that verse says, There John Mark left them, and he returned to Jerusalem. He goes home. So Barnabas and Paul now, just the two of them head into modern-day Turkey. And verse 14 says this, But Paul and Barnabas traveled inland to Antioch of Pisidia. This is not the same Antioch where they originated. That was Antioch of what we would call Syria. This is Antioch over in Turkey. During the Roman Empire, there's about 30 different cities called Antioch. So it can get a little confusing. On the Sabbath, they went to the synagogue. Again, you remember that picture you saw, right? They go there again as that was their custom. They're going to go and start with the Jewish people. They go to the Jewish synagogue for services. Verse 15 says, after the usual readings from the books of Moses and the prophets, those in charge of the service sent them this message. Brothers, they're speaking to Paul and Barnabas. If you have any word of encouragement for the people, come and give it. Look, this was typical tradition that if you were uh, a rabbi or a Pharisee from a different place, a different village, and it had been brought to the attention of the leadership in that synagogue that you were present, that you were there, uh, then they would invite you maybe to share some greetings. There's churches today that do that. A lot of smaller churches, uh, especially in rural areas, still do that. They'll recognize. Sometimes you'll see me do that when I see a friend of mine from another church, a pastor from another church, and that's really simply all that they're doing here and so they invite Paul and Barnabas to speak so of course Paul stands up verse 16 and he lifted his hand to quiet them and he started speaking men of Israel he said and you God-fearing Gentiles listen to me and for the next five or ten minutes he does what you see me do with the children up here most every Sunday if you've never seen that I, I take the children through the whole Bible I tell them the whole story. I just sort of hit the high points to help them see how the train cars sort of connect. I'll be doing that tomorrow morning at a Christian school where our kids go to school in in Tuscaloosa. They've asked me to come in one Monday a month, and they want me to teach their students the Bible timeline that our students here at Grace Life have learned. Well, that's what Paul's really doing here. He's giving them an overview of what God has done throughout history, but he does that to bring them to the main point of his message, to bring them to hear something that they've never heard before. Look at verse 38 of chapter 13. Brothers, after this laying out the timeline, he says, brothers, listen. 
We are here to proclaim that through this man, Jesus, there is forgiveness for your sins. Everyone who believes in him is made right in God's sight. Did you hear that? This is new information. This is good news. This is the gospel. This is not another religion that says, hey, fellas, here's the, here's the to-do list. Get it done. And maybe, just maybe, God will like you. Maybe, just maybe, he'll forgive you. And maybe you can have eternal life. No, they come in with the gospel. Everyone who believes in him is made right in God's sight. Something the law of Moses could never do. And with those words, the doctrine of justification by faith is proclaimed. In a region of the world, by the way, that was known as Galatia. This will be the message that Paul and Barnabas continue to preach throughout Galatia. Forgiveness is available through God's Son, Jesus Christ. By grace, through faith, you can be saved. You're made right with God. Not by anything that you do, but by faith in what Christ has already done for you. His death on the cross and that God raised him from the grave. Now this new message is drawing large crowds of people, Jews and Gentiles. They've never heard a message like this of grace, of mercy and forgiveness and freedom. This was a completely different word. It wasn't about works. It wasn't be religious, do this, offer this, sacrifice this. This is a message of freedom. It's a message of what Jesus has already accomplished. It's a message of deliverance from slavery to sin and bondage. You can be right with God and you can have eternal life by grace through faith in Christ. So the crowds are coming. Verse 44 says the following, we're going to read a minute, all right, hang with me. The following week, almost the entire city turned out to hear them preach the word of the Lord. But when some of the Jews saw the crowds, they were jealous. So they slandered Paul and argued against whatever he said. Then Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and declared, It was necessary that we first preach the word of God to you Jews. But since you have rejected it and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we'll offer it to the Gentiles. For the Lord gave us this command when he said, I have made you a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the farthest corners of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were very glad and thanked the Lord for his message. And all who were chosen for eternal life became believers. So the Lord's message spread throughout that region. Then the Jews stirred up the influential religious women and the leaders of the city. And they incited a mob against Paul and Barnabas and they ran them out of town. So they shook the dust from their feet as a sign of rejection. And they went to the town of Iconium. And the believers were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So they're continuing on their journey. And as they do, people are being added to the kingdom of God. They're leaving behind groups of people that have been saved. They're leaving people behind with some basic teachings about Jesus and about the message of the gospel. These are new Christians now that are beginning to meet together and they're doing the best they can in their understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done for them. And that brings us to chapter 14. The same thing happened in Iconium. We're still in Galatia, by the way. Paul and Barnabas went to the Jewish synagogue. 
Now, why are there so many Jewish synagogues all over the place, by the way? I don't know if you're asking yourself that question. Well, at this point in time in history, there's actually more Jewish people living outside of Israel than there were living inside of Israel. This goes back to the Babylonian captivity and the Persians and the Greeks and so forth. They had been scattered throughout the world at that time. So Paul and Barnabas went to the Jewish synagogue again, and they preached with such power. It's not that they were preaching. The way they preached was not with power. It was what they preached brought the power. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation. So they preached with such power that a great number of both Jews and Greeks became believers. Some of the Jews, however, spurned God's message and poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against Paul and Barnabas. But the apostles stayed there a long time preaching boldly about the grace, the grace of the Lord. Not, not passing around a list of things to do but proclaiming the message that it's done. It's all grace. And the Lord proved their message was true by giving them power to do miraculous signs and wonders. This is how God early on in the church was authenticating both the message and the messenger is oftentimes through miracles like this. So let me summarize what's told next. God's about to authenticate the message and the messengers by using Paul to heal this man that's not been able to walk his entire life. Everybody sees this miracle take place. They know the guy. They know what has just happened. And you can imagine the stir that creates. All right? Now, just outside that place, there's this big temple where these people would go and they would worship the god Zeus. So when the true God shows up in their town and he starts doing miracles through Paul and Barnabas, the people assume what has happened is... Zeus has come to town. They wrongly assume that Barnabas and Paul are Zeus and his son Hermes. Apparently Barnabas is a little bit older, probably has a pretty epic gray beard, right? Which is sort of Zeus-like. Some guys can pull that off, some of us can't. But apparently uh, Paul may look younger than Barnabas, so they seem to assume that Paul is Hermes, the son of Zeus. And they begin to come out and worship Paul and Barnabas, they start to drag out animals. What are they doing? They're thinking the way that the world has always thought and the way the world still thinks. If I can be good enough, I can be accepted. If I can do something, if I can check enough boxes, if I can give enough offerings, if I can make enough sacrifices, then we can be approved. So they start to drag out animals to offer sacrifices to Barnabas and Saul. Verse 14 says, But when the apostles Barnabas and Saul heard what was happening, they tore their clothing in dismay, and they ran out among the people. You can only imagine, they only want the people to know Jesus. And now these people are beginning to worship them, thinking they're Zeus and Hermes, and they don't want to have anything to do with and they begin to grieve in that. And they're shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We're merely human beings just like you. We've come to bring you good news. You don't have to do this foolishness anymore. This is not what's going to make you right with God. We have good news. There's hope. There's life. There's mercy. There's grace. There's forgiveness. There's salvation. There's eternal life. There, there's a, a better way. You should turn from these worthless things and turn to the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. In the past, He permitted all the nations to go their own ways, but He never left them without evidence of Himself. And his goodness, for instance, he sends you rain and good crops and gives you 
food and joyful hearts. But even with these words, Paul and Barnabas could scarcely restrain the people from sacrificing to them. That is so embedded within our sin nature. I got to do. I got to work. I got to perform. I got to give. I got to check the boxes. I got to do all this stuff. And so this scene is getting crazy. And then it gets even worse. Verse 19 says, Then some Jews arrived from Antioch, the Antioch in Turkey, not Syria, and Iconium, and they won the crowds to their side, and they stoned Paul. I mean, it was, it was really going well. People were coming to know the Lord. And now it looks like, man, the greatest missionary we've ever seen. His life is ending. They stoned Paul and they dragged him out of town thinking he was dead. And I just wonder, as that was happening to Paul, I wonder if he, his mind went back about 15 years to the day he stood there encouraging people to stone Stephen, who was preaching the same message. The same gospel. So the people think he's dead, and maybe he was. I'm not real sure. Verse 20 says, but as the believers gathered around him, he got up. And he went back into the town. And the next day, he left with Barnabas and Derby. He gets up, and he goes back into the city. Is he crazy? No, he's not crazy. He's a good example of what Jesus said. The one who's been forgiven much loves much. And Saul has been forgiven much, and he is so convinced that this message of freedom is so good and so liberating and so transforming and so life-giving and so revolutionary and so countercultural and so eternally valuable and so unknown by all of these people that he is willing out of his love for his Savior to risk death again and again. And again, and from there, Paul and Barnabas, they circle back to all those places they'd already been. And verse 21 says, After preaching the good news in Derby and making many disciples, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia, where they, watch this, they strengthened the believers. There weren't believers before they got there the first time through, but now there's believers there. There's churches that are meeting there. They encouraged them, probably mainly Barnabas because he's really good at that. They encouraged them to continue in the faith reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. This life for us following Jesus won't be easy. And Paul and Barnabas also appointed elders in every church. That, that God started leading them to, hey, here's, who's the leadership of this church going to be? Who, who are the elders? Who are the pastors of this church? And the Bible says with prayer and fasting, they turned the elders over to the care of the Lord in whom they had put their Trust. So these two men, Barnabas and, and Saul, Paul, they've paid a high price. They've suffered a lot. But look what now God's left behind in their wake. There's churches all throughout this part of the world where there wasn't just a short time before that. Men and women and boys and girls are meeting together because they love Jesus. Because this message of grace and mercy, the gospel of being forgiven and set free because of what Christ has done at the cross has gripped their hearts. And verse 24 says, when they traveled back through Pisidia to Pamphylia, they preached the word in Perga and then went down to Italia. And finally, they returned by ship to where they started from, Antioch of Syria. This is their first missionary journey. You made it. This is where the journey had begun. The Bible says the believers there had entrusted them to the grace, to the grace, grace of God. Because listen, y'all, grace is not just how we're saved. It's how we live. It's how we live. We live 
as we're saved. Grace through faith. They had entrusted them to the grace of God to do the work they had now completed. Upon arriving in Antioch, they called the church together and reported everything that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles too. Can you imagine that church meeting when they got together and they got to hear Paul and Barnabas tell story after story after story of watching God deliver people by the power of the gospel. And verse 28 says, and they stayed there with the believers for a long time. So in, in southern Turkey, in this place called Galatia, the gospel's taking root, right? It's beginning to grow. It's beginning to spread. The church is on the move. But you know Satan's not happy about that. And no sooner really it seems that Paul and Barnabas get back home to Antioch. False teachers have weaseled their way in to those new baby churches. Among those new baby believers... And they were twisting and contorting and perverting the true gospel into a false gospel. A false gospel that says Jesus isn't enough. If you want to trust him, that's good, but that's just where you start. Then you've got to pick up the to-do list. And you've got to start doing certain things. You've got to... Be a good Jew, and you've got to follow the rules and be obedient to the law. You've got to earn God's love now. You've got to earn God's favor and God's forgiveness now. You've, you've got to get to work now to keep this right with God. You've got to earn this and perform. And you can imagine now that the people are be, being confused. This is, this is not what they had heard. From Paul and Barnabas. Suddenly this burden of the old way begins to settle back in on their shoulders. And the joy that they had had in the Lord begins to quickly melt away. And it looks like all of the work that Paul and Barnabas... Y'all take a message. It looks like all the work that Paul and Barnabas had done might be for nothing. But news of what was happening in Galatia reached the Apostle Paul. And Paul sits down. And the Holy Spirit begins to move Paul's heart and his mind. And he begins to pen a letter the first letter that he ever wrote that we know of to those churches in Galatia. And his whole purpose of writing that letter is to bring them back to the true gospel. Don't believe the lie. Don't go back to the old way. Jesus is enough. It's not Jesus plus Anything We call that letter that he wrote the book of Galatians. And next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll take a breather out of the book of Acts. And I'll just kind of give you an overview of that beautiful book there. It's basically Paul telling a bunch of ex-prisoners to stop beating down the doors of the prison to try to get back in. And that the way we've lived our lives so many times? God has set us free 
But we start trying to beat the doors down to go back into the way we used to do things. To go back into putting all the burden on self. Trying to be good enough on our own. To try to change ourselves and to change other people. Today I just need to ask you, are you trusted in Christ alone to save you? Not, not Christ plus anything. Are you living in the truth that your identity today is in Christ? Your eternity is settled today because of what Jesus has done for you. Or maybe today, like the Galatians, you're, maybe you wouldn't say it, but something inside of you seems to reveal that you're believing a false gospel that says Jesus is not enough. I got to do more. I got to perform. You know you're buying that false gospel, by the way, when shame and guilt hang on you, when there's this overwhelming desire to change yourself and to change other people, and that's heavy on you. Maybe you've been believing that when Jesus said to tell us die, when Jesus said it is finished, that he didn't really mean that. Maybe you've been believing a false gospel that says when Jesus said it is finished, what he really meant to say is it's almost finished. Now you get to work. Now it's your turn. Do your part. You fix you now. You do the rest now. You be good enough now. You maintain my favor. You maintain this right standing with me. And then I will continue to love you. That is a false gospel. I'm here to say no to that. In Christ alone, we're free. In Christ alone, we're forgiven. In Christ alone, we are the sons and the daughters of God with all the rights and privileges of sonship. 47 years of being at church on a Sunday morning has not earned me any favor with God. Nothing that I'm doing right now in this moment is earning me any extra credit with Jesus. He did it all at the cross. And there's nothing that any of you could do today to make God love you any more than He already does. Look at Jesus. And there's nothing that you're going to do today so bad that he's going to love you any less. Just look at Jesus. It's not Christ plus anything. Freedom, forgiveness, salvation. Eternity in heaven is Christ and Christ alone. As a God, we bow our hearts before you. People who are prone to wonder into believing a false gospel. A gospel that burdens us and shames us and accuses us 
and drains us of the life that Jesus died to give us. We are like the Galatians. We are those ex-prisoners who turned around and we're trying to beat the doors down to the prison so we can live there again. But you've called us by your grace to be free. Holy Spirit, would you drench us with your grace and with your gospel. With heads bowed and with eyes closed, if you're here today and you have been trusting in Jesus plus anything to make you right with God, you are not right with God. The gospel alone is the power of God to salvation. And Jesus plus anything is a false gospel. That's not the power of God to salvation. If you've never trusted Christ alone to save you, I want to encourage you to do that today. If you're here today and you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, you're a child of God. But man, you keep going back to that old prison of shame and guilt and I'm not enough and Jesus is not enough and where's the to-do list and show me how I can improve myself and make things better. You're not defined by the good things you do. Nor does your mess define you. Your Messiah alone does. He said it's finished. As a child of God, you're free. You're free to enjoy the Lord. I just think in the depths of my heart, that's what the church, at least the one I'm looking at, needs to be hearing right now. We have, I think, forgotten how to enjoy the Lord. We're tired. Discombobulated. You're not the same people you were. You have not been acting the same toward each other that you used to act. This room is way too calm as people come in. I fear that the joy of the Lord has been leaking. And this morning, I just want to point us back to Jesus. And the good news of the gospel that is not dependent on any of our circumstances. It's finished. It's done. It's settled. And you're free today in Christ to enjoy the Lord in the spectacular views of His grace. Breathe that in. Paul Tripp said that grace means that your past is fully covered. Your present is fully supplied. 
and your future is unshakably guaranteed. That's grace. You cannot earn it. We do not deserve it. It's ours through Christ and Christ alone. I want to invite you to stand and let's worship the Lord. Holy Spirit, would you restore to us the joy of our salvation? False gospel says shame on us and Jesus says shame off of you. Whom the Son is set free is free indeed. Set us free to love you better. Set us free to love each other better.